Amen. I invite you to have a seat, church family. Those are lines, those last lines that we can sing and mean with all our heart and which we can grow ever deeper in all the days of our lives. This I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. And so I'm going to pray now, Lord, would you take us deeper into the grace that is in you, Jesus, as we open your word and as we see you encounter Paul and Paul you, Lord, take us deeper in your grace. Pray in your precious name. Amen. We're, uh, we're picking up in the middle of a story. And we're going to read the whole story, even though I'm preaching mostly on the second half of it. Because I want us to be refreshed in uh, what we heard last week when we heard of Paul's radical conversion. And Pastor Gina felt led to mostly highlight or look at Ananias and his role of being called in and cooperating with what God was doing and um, in Paul and through Paul. So we're in Acts chapter 9, which uh, is on page what, Vic? 1706. Okay. And I'd like to say one other thing before I read this text. We're entering a section in, in Acts where we're about to experience transition. And it's going to happen really quickly. So Jesus said to the disciples, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And it's like these concentric circles, right? Like they're going out. And mostly what we've seen up to this point is Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. So it's been pretty close to home. And um, we're going to see now with Paul's conversion in just a short little bit that the gospel is going to start going out across the world, literally, to the Roman, whole Roman Empire. Uh, but that transition is going to take place from chapter 9, where Paul's converted, to chapter 13, where they're in Antioch and they're praying and they're fasting and the Holy Spirit says, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work I've called them to and send them out. So three and a half chapters, but this is what I want you to hear. Those three and a half chapters cover 13 years. And actually our text for this morning covers three years and almost a thousand miles and you wouldn't know it from reading it. You, would, you, you wouldn't know it unless you actually read Galatians 1, verse 15 to 24, where Paul details very clearly what happened after he was converted, where he went and where he didn't go, and that he didn't go to Jerusalem for at least three years after he was converted. And then, and only then, did he meet the apostles. So I just want us to bear that in mind as we come to our text for this morning. And I'll tell you when we're going to start reading what we didn't read last week for those who weren't here last week. So, Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. High priest is in Jerusalem. Damascus is... 135 miles away, six days walk by foot. He's serious. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. 
he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. That's the limit a human being can go without dying from dehydration on average, three days. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. And here's where we shift. Saul spent several days with disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his, this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, now this is three years later, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, 
they sent him down to Caesarea at 78 miles away and then off to Tarsus. That's 586 miles from Caesarea. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear or reverence of the Lord. God's word. On Thursday and Friday of this week, Pastor Gina and I had the opportunity to be at Calvin Seminary and to participate in something that's called the Renewal Lab and to do some learning with a group of pastors that are going through this Renewal Lab. And on Friday, we had a speaker by the name of Jim Harrington who came in from Houston, Texas to talk to us about change and how change produces anxiety. And uh, he said something that I want to unpack for a minute that was kind of funny and maybe a little confusing at first, but he said, anxiety makes us stupid. Let me explain, he said. He said, we've got, brain science can actually show us, we've got our thinking processes and we've got our feeling processes and that when we enter into conflict and the conflict produces anxiety within us, there's there's a shift where these two might be paralleled beside each other that actually the thinking just begins to drop it's not that we're not smart but as the emotions in the situation the anxiety and the other negative emotions maybe arise our thinking processes drop down into the basement they get taken over it's like we can't think because of anxiety and i thought i can relate to that so i'm going to share something with you but i have Anne's permission to share so just so you don't get anxious about, about this for her. All right. And I won't go into too much detail here, but so we have conflict. You all have conflict. You can maybe think about conflict with your friends or your children or your parents or your spouses. But Ann and I have conflict. Happens once in a while. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and this happens to me in conflict. Um, I will think in the moment that I am, I'm right. And there's just no way that I'm not right about what we're talking about. And my defenses are getting up and I am engaging in this. And, um, you know, we're <clears throat> having this discussion and it's not going so well. And so maybe we need to pull apart and go have some time to have a timeout, right? That's why our kids have timeouts. So we have timeouts too. And the strangest thing happens. I get out of this situation and get over here. And I think now it's that balance that comes back a little bit. And, and there will come in this rushing realization with crystal clarity that not only am I not right, but I just said something that was really hurtful or I did something or I didn't do something that's really hurtful in this circumstance. And, um, and so, as I realize that, here's the, there's a few things I want to draw out of this, but here's one for right now. As I realize that, each time, it's this, oh, oh, like not only how did I miss that, but I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of what I said or what I did or what I didn't do that hurt. 
And um, it's that shame that I want to think about for a little bit this morning because I, I've just got to tell you, I, I got stuck in this text. There's a spot where I got stuck and I just couldn't get by all week. And it might seem a little strange to you at first, but here's where I got stuck. Paul immediately begins preaching. After he finishes his three days of prayer and fasting, it says immediately he's preaching. And I just began to wonder to myself, how? If I, if I experience a certain degree of remorse, of shame, of guilt, whatever it is, when I come to this realization of a way that I hurt Anne or I hurt somebody else, maybe it's one of our children, maybe it's one of you, but when, when I experience that, and you, you know the feelings I'm talking about? If you're human, you should know what I'm talking about. Yeah, okay, I'm just, put up a hand or give me something here. You know these feelings? If I experience that, in, in, a, in this, this degree of conflict, I just found myself thinking about what was it like for Paul? What was it like for him to be heading to Damascus thinking he is entirely right, thinking he is serving God, and then not just to have this profound experience of being blinded and spoken to, but to have this rushing in realization that I was not only completely wrong, but that I have been hurting people in brutal ways and I can't take that back. Listen to some of the words in the text. Breathing out murderous threats, creating havoc, creating harm against the saints in Jerusalem. So if you want a picture of this, what we should maybe picture is him with a high priest's notice bursting into somebody unsuspecting person's house with force, with people with him, and without any conversation or disgusting discussion, hey, you're going with me. You're a follower of the way. And splitting up a marriage and creating trauma in little kids because they're watching mom or dad or aunt or uncle or grandpa or grandma get ripped out of the house, forcibly arrested, hurt on the way, beat up, and who knows what else. Because we know what early church history tells us about how some of the saints were treated. They lost their lives. And Paul had a hand in it. He was central in it. And so I find myself, what is it like to realize, oh God, I killed people. Or I I had a hand in it. I, I tore families apart. I... And when I think about the real weight of shame and of guilt and how it works upon us. And then I think, wait a minute, three days later, you're standing up in a public place in front of the very people that you came to arrest and you are publicly preaching, Jesus is the Messiah. It makes me think, What happened? What happened to you on that road and in those three days? What happened to you that you could get up publicly and be empowered to preach in the name of the one you were working against? This is not mere obedience, though it certainly includes that. Something 
happened to Paul. He had an encounter with Jesus Christ that profoundly shaped him. And I think we begin to get clues of that even in Jesus' response to him. So Jesus says this to Paul on the road. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And when Saul says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus. Now get up and go to Damascus. My seminary professor once said, sometimes the most important thing in the text is the thing that's not said. And I think I see that in multiple places here. What Jesus doesn't say is, Paul, you jerk. You angry, proud, full of rage individual who's destroying my church. He didn't say anything like that. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? In other words, Saul, you're hurting me. You're hurting me. I'm Jesus. And in this vulnerable place where Paul is naked, Jesus doesn't say anything to him about his sins. I'm not like this. We are not like this normally. When people hurt us, we want to talk about their sins. We want to talk about the ways that, the things that they've done. But here's Jesus. Saul, I'm Jesus. Now get up and go to Damascus. And so he gets up and he goes. And in Damascus, he's got three days without food and without water. But it says he's in prayer. And it says that Jesus shows him how much he must suffer. And I think Jesus showed him a few other things. And uh, all week I've been really just loving uh, doing something that I've never thought about doing before. And that was, I've been reading this text. I've been reading Paul's letters to the churches back into this text. And I've been, and I've been um, just seeing how this encounter with Jesus, I think, comes out in all of his letters. So listen to some of what Paul writes and listen to it not as an idea that's true, but as something that comes out of an experience with Jesus. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, While we were yet sinners, meaning while we were dead in our sins, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul's saying, that's me. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the ungodly one that Christ died for. Paul says, I'm convinced that nothing in all of creation, whether angels or demons or heights or depth of the past or the present or the future, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Paul says, if we're out of our mind, it's for God's sake. For Christ's love compels us, pushes us forward. Paul says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, I pray that you can have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how high and how long and how deep is this love of Christ that knows no bounds. 
Can you hear him now in his letters, talking to the churches, speaking out of this experience that he's had of Jesus? He has been completely exposed. Nakified is the word I like to use. There's nothing that God doesn't see. He gets, he gets radically encountered in such a way that all of his sin, every ounce of pride, religious pride, self-sufficiency, anger, it's all exposed right there. He can't hide from it. He's blinded by the light. And in the presence of the light, he gets wrapped in the arms of grace. He doesn't get condemned. He gets accepted. He gets told, I've chosen you. I've chosen you. You're mine. You know, sometimes we might, some of us might envy radical conversion experiences. I don't know that we need to envy them because they often mean that we've strayed far, 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 far. So we ought not to envy the way that Paul is converted to Jesus Christ here. We ought not to envy anything that he had to be rescued from. But if there's anything to be envied, and I think there is, it's the way that he was exposed. It's the way that he was nakedified. Because you and I are not at all unlike our first parents in the garden who, with the knowledge of their sin in front of them, hid. We hide all the time. And part of the reason that we sometimes don't have the experience of living in the, the embrace of God's, the fullness of God's love all the time isn't because His love changes but because we actually haven't been fully exposed. We haven't actually had the grace to see just how bad we are. That there's absolutely nothing that I can do to fix myself, to please God, to become righteous, to atone for my sin. We haven't had the experience of being made naked and then wrapped. And so I think if there's anything that the Lord would want to do this morning through this text, it's to invite us to the vulnerability of being made naked or exposed before his love. And here's where I want to just tie back before I close, tie back to what we were learning at Calvin Seminary uh, about anxiety and about conflict. Because what they taught us there was that in conflict, what's standard for us to do is fight or flee. But regardless of what we do when we're in conflict, we often disconnect from the person that we're conflicting with. So I could stay right in the conversation. I could stay right in church and not be connected I, I can stay right in the conversation with a spouse or a friend, but still be distant. Or I could engage in heavy conflict and yet be distant. The, they said the real challenge in conflict is, can I stay connected to a person? Can I communicate? I love you. Even as I am 
having a hard time in this area or we're disagreeing or we are trying to work through something. And um, I think that's profound that it's woven into our DNA that we're none of us grow up being good at this. And I think what we see in God is this ability to stay connected to say in the, in, in the face of the ugliest that there is to see in us completely exposed, nothing is hidden. He says, I, I'm staying connected to you even as I expose your sin. So he didn't say to Paul that anything that Paul did was right or good. He just exposes him and wraps his arms of love around him, forgives him, calls him into his service. And um, Paul is able to receive that love. That was a choice he had to make. It's humbling. And I think actually it was quite vulnerable for him. He had to allow himself to be exposed, as it were. But he received it. And that love of Jesus, I believe, is what strengthened him to endure the loneliness that came from people not understanding, not believing, not wanting him around. You don't belong here. You're not one of us. That love is what strengthened him to endure the the rage that then came against him and wanted to take his life multiple times. That love, I also believe, is what strengthened and encouraged the church and brought about a great season of peace. So I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know where you're experiencing struggle or difficulty or hardship. I just know that the Lord wants to come and wrap his arms of grace and love around us afresh because as Lindsay read to start the service, his mercy is new every morning. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer of response to receive afresh the grace and the love of the Lord. Lord, you see us the same way you saw Paul. We can't hide. And so help us not to hide. You see our pride. You see our anger. You see our criticism. You see our lust. You see our jealousy. You see our apathy. You see it all. You see our lack of faith. You see everything. And you come and you wrap your arms of love around us. And so, Lord, we receive your love this morning. We receive your forgiveness afresh. We receive fullness of grace. And we pray, Lord, let your love compel us and help us to stay connected to each other where we have conflict and help us to model to the world around us a love that's so powerful that it doesn't disconnect but wraps its arms around those who are different and who disagree. And Lord, again we pray afresh, let the river of your love just flow through our hearts, our lives, this church, and your world. We pray it in your name, Jesus. As we sit here in this place of hearing this message, the Lord is present in his love. 
And in his love, he looks at each of us. And I want to invite you just in your imagination, in your imagination given over to the Lordship of Christ to imagine that as he stands and looks at you with love, that um, I believe some of you know that you're sitting with some sin, some sin that separated you, distanced you from the Lord or distanced you from other people. And I feel like the Lord just looks at you and says, I see those harsh responses. And he's inviting you to just look at him with the eyes of his love. Rather than trying to hide, you would just acknowledge, yeah, that's right. I feel like that for some, some one or some, that he says, I know. I know what you've been doing, and I know what you've been looking at, and it's wrong. And he invites you to just look at his eyes of love and receive forgiveness. I believe that for some there's maybe just a a pride and an indifference and going on in life without being thinking about his kingdom and prioritizing his kingdom. And today he stands here and he looks. And he sees and he knows that you've been indifferent. And I believe that he would just invite you to look and receive forgiveness and receive his love. And there may be other things that the Lord is, in his grace, revealing to you as you are before him. And he invites you to look at him and listen to his words of forgiveness and love and guidance for next steps. And so we're going to listen to a poem that um, Lindsay wrote a few years back and is reminded of. And so she's going to read this before we sing our song of response. As we go, would you hold out your hands to receive this blessing? The Lord bless you to encounter the love of the Father that never looks away and that never lets go. And the Lord bless you to know... I'm losing it. The Lord bless you to encounter his radical love. And the Lord bless you with courage to be completely unraveled before him, to be exposed and to look him right in the eye. And the Lord bless you to know that his love covers all of our sins. Amen.